Welcome to the Anxiety Recovery Podcast. My name is Valerie. I'm an anxiety mindset coach and hypnotherapist. You know that moment where you are absolutely at peace in the present moment. I believe that is what we are all at the pursuit of. And I want to help you get one step closer by up-leveling your health, mindset, and love for yourself. Because that happiness and lasting fulfillment can only be created and found within. So get ready for all things mindset, mental health, and self-love. I hope this serves you. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Anxiety Recovery Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today, I have an amazing guest named Chelsea Smith. She's an RTT therapist, clinical hypnotherapist, emotional intelligence life coach, and spirituality life coach who specializes in neurodivergency, sexual trauma, spirituality, and religious trauma. And we wanted to talk today all about like the different nuances and connections between anxiety, ADHD, um, spirituality, and, um, and autism, because they all super like interconnect. And um, her and I personally had like a personal conversation and so many things clicked for me. So I just thought this would be so beautiful to have Chelsea on. So welcome to the podcast, Chelsea. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Very excited. Yes. Amazing. Could you tell people a little bit more about what you do and kind of how you got started into it? So I wear multiple hats um, with all of the different roles I hold, but I got started mainly on a self-discovery healing journey, working through some major trauma that I've experienced throughout my life. Uh, And it started out with, uh, just basic counselor talk therapist where we did the traditional approaches. Um, I've seen many throughout my lifetime and she was the first one that really helped me connect and understand my mind in a way that no one else had. Um, And as a result of that, then she encouraged me to pursue hypnotherapy. I did hypnotherapy for myself. And then about a year after I completed my hypnotherapy Um, self-work. Then I enrolled in RTT, which is where you and I had met, Um, got my RTT license or therapist licensure, and then my clinical hypnotherapist licensure, opened up my practice. And then while I was practicing just RTT, I got my training in um, as a spirituality and emotional intelligence life coach. I did that with the intent of kind of learning how to understand myself and my emotions in a capacity that I'd never understood before. And through that, um, it just kind of transpired. I learned and recognized a lot of things within myself, basically, um, through the various professions that I've worked with. I came to my awareness that I, in fact, have level one autism myself um, without intellectual disability. So what that basically means is I would be what people would consider a high functioning autistic individual. I don't prefer that language myself because that's just who I am. It's not a, it's not a disease. It's not a bad thing for me or, you know, any of the clients I work with to have that on them. That's, it's just describes their neurotype and the way their brain processes and thinks and how it differs from one individual to the next. So through all of that, um, 
self-work that I did and I developed the programs that I run helping people through the spirituality component of um, neurodivergency because that's something that's lost in the mainstream kind of westernized way of dealing and, and working through these ailments. That is just so beautiful how your own like self-work journey really catapulted you into becoming a hypnotherapist and all of these titles yourself. I just think that's so beautiful, like really stepping into that role of yourself of like, this is who I am and this helps me help other people's like me or who, um, you know, are very similar to me. And I think that's really beautiful. Can you share a little bit of like, what are some symptoms and signs of like, like, I know you hate the, the, the label, like high functioning autism, but maybe someone like you, what would be like some symptoms and signs of that? Mainly you're going to see a lot of anxiousness in the personalities of those types of individuals. Um, they can operate very well. They seem to function well at work, usually because they are high achievers you know those types of people have spent their entire life being told that every single thing about their essence and who they are as a person is wrong you know the a person with autism or neurodivergency they don't know how to release um energy that's stored in their body so they get very amped up and excited and they don't know what to do with that energy and so what they do is that's where we get the flappy hands and the tippy toe walks and the people that talk nonstop. I'm one of those, and, you know, Valerie yourself, you have that tendency in you too. We just talk and talk and talk because we're vocal stimming as a way of getting excess energy out of us. And a lot of those instinctual behaviors that we possess as neurotyp or neurodivergent individuals are squashed out of us very young and children are told, you know, sit still, be quiet, you know, don't do those things. And because of that, then it shows up in being a people pleaser and doing and striving and constantly being perfect because if I can do that, then I'm safe and then I'm accepted and then I'm loved. So you see people pleasers, the high perfection tendencies, a lot of things that happen as well is there's for most um, ADHD specifically, but a lot of neurodivergency, there's a lot of characteristics where they start a task and if they can do it, they would do it really well and they do it really quick and it's very easy for them. So then when they try to do some different task, if they're met with resistance or challenge, they won't do it because they know in their mind, I am capable of a lot of things and I can do things rapidly, quickly and easily. So if it's not easy for me, then I'm just not supposed to be doing it. And so you know, that's where kind of that um, executive dysfunction can show up. That's where um, procrastination shows up a lot because why would I exert myself to do something that I know I can't, you know, does that make sense? Yes. I think that's such a fantastic like explanation, like, wow, like just beautiful, this explanation. And I think like how you describe that, like voice stimming, like that makes so much sense to me. Like that's, and that, that is like, that's just how I talk. I talk a lot. And um, my own work as a hypnotherapist has been practicing listening more and labeling so that clients feel heard and seen. Um, but yeah, I think that that just makes so much sense. And it, and it, it sounds like almost like people who are maybe have these neurotypical or neurodivergent signs and symptoms, it's like mislabeled or 
they're misdiagnosed. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Um, for women, especially, there's a lot of um, BPD, borderline personality disorder that's misdiagnosed, um, depression, anxiety, um, OCD, those types of things. Uh, a lot of them are, in fact, autistic or have ADHD. Um, the base model for assessment for ADHD and autism is outdated. It's based on white male children. And a white male child is going to present very differently than an African-American girl. Or, it, you know, it doesn't even matter race-wise, but it the culture does matter because in different cultures, the way it presents is going to show up differently. And in some cultures, those behaviors that is not allowed in our predominant culture that we've grown up around, if it's squashed out in one population but not the other, then there's that overlapping. And so um, a lot of women are misdiagnosed um, and minorities as well. Um, it's, it's a shame because what I've seen in myself and what I've witnessed in the clients that I work with, when they come to this understanding and recognizing that there's not a problem with them, there's nothing wrong with them, you know, their mental health struggles that they've battled their entire life are a result of operating in a world where um, their brain isn't accepted. The way they're processing information and experiencing life is not even keel with the rest of the population. So. Yes, I think that's such a fantastic explanation. I'll probably end up saying that same thing over and over again, um, because how you described that was fantastic because like our, for example, even, even um, not even with neurodivergency, but with women compared to men, like our society is built for men. Like men have a 24 hour cycle. Women have a 28 day cycle. So their moods, their hormones fluctuate. Even just that alone causes so much discrepancy and can cause anxiety in and of itself. Say, you know, if you're having hormonal issues or you're struggling with like heavy periods, for example, that's going to be really hard to show up in the workplace like a white male in that same mm -hmm. capacity. And even just that on top of if you struggle with your mental health, with anxiety, with ADHD, with autism, or your brain is functioning differently and society squashes that. And like, um, like with ADHD, like even as a kid, I like, cause I have ADHD. Um, and basically like for me, they, like, I remember trying, like, even in seventh grade, like I remember trying so hard in this English class. Like I studied all the time, like whatever. And I still got like a D like I just struggled to, um, thrive in that type of environment, or at least with this subject skill. And I remember like, she called in my mom and like, we had this teacher conference and she was just like you know you're not trying hard enough and I remember like sobbing being like I am like literally trying as hard as I possibly can it's just not good enough and that's where I believe a lot of people um like they acquire these beliefs about themselves I'm not enough there's something wrong with me I'm not lovable what I do isn't ever going to be good enough could you speak a little bit like on that yeah, well, and I think a lot of that, especially in neurodivergency, there's a lot of schooling trauma that's not being spoken about and addressed because 
what happens, especially for girls, the way it presents is very different. So a boy with autism or ADHD, and not all, but some, it's a spectrum. So you're going to fall somewhere in this, you know, space. But for a lot of boys, they're hyperactive and they cannot sit still. That does show up in some girls. I'm not going to negate that fact. But for the vast majority of girls, it does not show up outwardly as much as it does internally. So girls are hypersensitive to the thoughts that are going and running through their brain all of the time, the physical sensations that they feel internally, you know, any twinge or pain or muscle spasm, anything in their body, they're hyper aware to that. So that's going to immediately divert their attention from what a teacher is standing at the front of the classroom teaching to, oh, gosh, what's going on in my body? I felt something, you know, oh, it's cold. Now the, there's birds chirping out the window. And so even though they're not physically moving around, their attention and their point of focus is all over the room inside of their internal body externally. So they're distractibility is very high, but it's not recognized. And so then you get a lot of situations where teachers are saying, you know, they're just not trying because a teacher looks and sees these little girls spacing out or looking around the room, thinking that they're choosing not to pay attention. When in reality, they're trying their hardest to pay attention, but there's so many stims going around them, stims being, being sensations or stimulus that's distracting them. Mm -hmm. I, I personally think there needs to be an overhaul in the school system and the way that we teach, especially those children, um, because they're highly intelligent, almost all of them are. And if you can, what, what works well when I work with adolescents and teens is anything that we're working on, we find that central focus of what they're really drawn to. They, most of them, if not all of them, are going to have a hyperfixation. They're going to have something or someone that they hyperfocus on. Um, boys, it's going to be more automobiles, trains, planes, and like dinosaurs. Girls, it's going to show up in fixating on other people like different singers or a certain author or um, even a certain animal. I know as a child myself, I hyper fixated on do dolphins. So anything that you could make education wise around that topic for them is going to help them learn. So when you teach math, it's, you know, there's three dolphins swimming, one of them goes the other way, how many dolphins are left? They're still learning those math skills, but it's completely focused on that individuality and what keeps them engaged. Wow, that's just like the best explanation like I've ever heard. What And, and is that like pertaining to um, just people in the neurodivergency like spectrum in general or is it is that towards people with ADHD or with autism or is that like the same you're gonna see it more in ADHD and autism um specifically autism typically ADHD hyperfocus will navigate or it'll migrate so you know for one time we're really focused on learning how to make beaded bracelets and then the next couple weeks or whenever that hyperfixation lapses, then we're going to focus on, you know, now we're painting all the time. And so th there's then as adults, a lot of them will get into money trouble because they'll find this passion and, you know, they're getting all of the endorphins, the dopamine, the serotonin, the oxytocin from all of these things. And so they're going to pour their heart and soul into doing these things, um, purchasing and buying. And so that then can get miscued and labeled as being manic. Um, when in some instances, it's not necessarily that they're manic as they're just following 
who they are as a person and trying to regulate their nervous system in the way that they found has worked for them throughout the entirety of their life. Um, autism specific, they're going to be more centrally focused for long terms on that one thing, that special interest. Fascinating. Wow. That makes so much sense. And even just that example of like, um, like boys and men who are autistic will focus more on, you know, trains or dinosaurs or um, automobiles, whereas women, they might be really hyper fixated on, um, on men or whoever they're attracted to, um, or, you know, just on people in general or an animal. And I find that to be super fascinating. And because like some of my clients, um, they can have trauma bonds or they become really hyper fixated on um, a past partner or um, their current partner. And it's, you know, obviously that can be because of trauma, but if you are on the neurodivergent spectrum, it can be even more enhanced. Yeah, absolutely. And that can also lead into the misdiagnoses of OCD and that obsessive thinking and that the what appears to be compulsive and it's not that it is traditional point blank OCD it is just they are neurodivergent and they will fi fixate and there's nothing wrong with it um, there's techniques and skills that you can teach people and that I implement in my work with my clients um, one of the main things I do is a stoplight system where recognizing there's only a limited amount of capacity that any given person in the planet earth has in a given day for someone that is neurodivergent their amount or the window of time they have where they are at their best and optimal and have a bunch to give is substantially less than that of a neurotypical person because of um, a pruning process that our brain goes through at age two. For neurodivergent people, they don't effectively go through that pruning process in the way that biologically we were intended to. So the ability to filter out irrelevant sensations, visual stimulations, sounds, smells, um, physical touch, any of that stuff, our brain as neurodivergent population doesn't effectively filter out the amount that we need it to. So then we can end up in these positions where we're burnt out. And so with this stoplight system, what I do is, you know, when you have a red day and you have very limited capacity, what are the main things that you need to get done every single day? And then holding yourself to that. And on a red day for me, that is, I brushed my teeth. Mm -hmm. That's it. You know, there are some days where I just don't have it in me. If I had a weekend where I spent a lot of time with a bunch of people, which is what I did this weekend. Now today I have two clients scheduled. Well, between those clients, I came home so I could be in my safety and in my comfort and where I, I feel the best. So I could recharge myself knowing that I'm running on a red day, not a yellow or a green day. You know, a green day is going to be where you have all of the energy and can get all of the things done. And that's, skills and techniques that are really important for neurodivergent people to implement in their livelihood. I think that is so excellent because I find that especially in this society, we're taught to go, 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 grind, 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 post on TikTok five to eight times a day, post on Instagram every day, 
consistency is key. That's your way to success. And while I can understand that and appreciate that, that doesn't put into account people who have ADHD, autism, or just anxiety in general. Like with anxiety, it's like if you're so anxious, you're going to have much a much lower capacity to handle stress, stressors and do big things like cook dinner, um, brush our teeth, do self-care, shower. It can be difficult if we're at such low capacity and, and having that stoplight system and identifying, okay, what is the minimum thing that I need to get done today on my red day? Like you said, maybe that's brushing your teeth. Maybe that's getting up before 2 p.m. Maybe that's taking a shower that day. Maybe that's going for a five minute walk. You know, what is that for you? And really identifying that because then it's like, then you could identify, okay, I'm having a red day. And then you could identify and not shame yourself for not doing more, which is what society does. And, and society gives people a badge of honor of like, oh, you're so busy. Like, that's great. And like, for example, for me, like when I first started um, my business, I was also a case manager working with people on the spectrum um, and, and working with teens and, and um, children um, with mental health struggles and neurodivergency. And I was working like 16 to 18 hours a day. And that was not sustainable. I did that for about, you know, seven months. And then my body literally went into a shutdown, which is where that burnout comes from of like, push, 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 you're overriding your bodily cues, your sensations. And then you're, you're, it's just a mess. So it's like, also honoring what feels best for your body and, and, looking at that red, you know, yellow light system for yourself and being like, this is the bare minimum and not shaming yourself on those days that maybe you do have a red day. Absolutely. No, I agree with that completely. Um, I know my mother, um, she's passed away now. Um, and so I don't know formality wise if it's true, but I suspect that she had autistic tendencies herself. And I, would put money on it that she was neurodivergent. Um, but she did that same concept of hustle hard, work hard, push, push, push. Well, at 42 years old, she had a stroke. Her body just couldn't do it. You know, she um, experienced a lot of health issues very young in life because of how much she pushed herself and her body didn't allow it be anymore because she couldn't. And that's something that a lot of people we're seeing more and more in society is people are getting sick so much and so quickly. And it's not just these colds, like these are debilitating things that are taking young people out. And it's because we're not machines, you know, who are we serving? If we're just purging ourselves all day, every day, it's not conducive for someone that's neurotypical to do, let alone somebody who's neurodivergent, especially when you think of that neurodivergent population, there's just so much that we're expected to maintain and uphold because you see me on, you know, my green day and you look at me and I look like a perfectly functioning, well-adjusted adult. And so everyone assumes that, well, I'm happy, I'm healthy, I'm good because they don't see me on my red days. But that is because I implement that and I know my cycle and I know when I need to 
kind of give myself more of that time freedom and that flexibility. And I know it's not practical for everybody, which is a shame because it should be. That's how our world should be, is that we should be able to recognize those things in ourselves, take the time that we need to recoup, reset, so we can show up at the top of our game. Um, in corporate America, we're really starting to see that shift a little bit more, which I'm so grateful of. I There's a lot that needs to happen yet, but there's being more of an emphasis put on, you know, incentives for wellness and getting, you know, kickbacks from the company you're working for. I think even Aflac does it and they'll pay you if you go get these certain things done. That way you're taking care of yourself so you can show up better for everyone. And that's something that neurodivergent people really need to kind of hone in on for themselves and really open their eyes and recognize this is care. This is nothing wrong with you. This is you taking care of your human body and embracing all that you are so that we can be here longer and really enjoy our time and existence because we're not machines and we're supposed to experience the emotions and the highs and the lows of life. And when we condition ourselves to only exert ourselves for money, then what are we gaining? A hundred percent. I can't agree more with you. I, I think that, yeah, we're, we're going in a good direction, but there is still so much that we need to be done. And, you know, this is why, like, for me, I've always resonated a little bit more with entrepreneurship because it's like, I create my own schedule. I can decide when I want to push more or, you know, things like that. And like, I remember working with a business coach and I was telling him like, yo, cause like I was doing my job you know, full-time as a case manager. And then at home I would do hypnotherapy sessions for clients and I worked till 11 at night. And I'm like, I literally like, I can't do more than this. Like, you know, social media and like doing all this other stuff at the time. Um, and he was just like, you're just going to have to suck it up and like do more. And that's so damaging. And I had to really work on unlearning those beliefs that weren't mine and other society and, and societies and um, caregivers and all that stuff. It's just, it's very unhealthy and like, it's so unhealthy. And even like my dad, um, he has autism and, and narcissism. Uh, like he definitely has narcissistic tendencies and he wasn't formally diagnosed that he was, he had autism until he was 60. And so he's 62. And so um, it's just very wild how, you know, cause like right now, for example, he works, you know, a 40 hour a week job, sometimes longer. And maybe to someone who's neurotypical or isn't on this night neurodivergent spectrum it could be much easier to have a 40 hour a week job for him. He's like always stressed. He's always like, he really struggles with functioning like after work because it is a more demanding job, but someone who's neurotypical might have different reactions to that type of job. Absolutely. And you got to take into play there too. There's a little bit of toxic masculinity going on, especially if there's the narcissistic tendencies. A lot of people that are autistic will come across as if they are narcissistic because of the way that they approach life. They have a very, um, society likes to say it's black and white thinking. I personally think it's rainbow thinking because there is no black and white with them. A lot of them can recognize one extreme or the another and 
trajectory place themselves somewhere in that spectrum. But what comes happens when um, there's that overlap of the narcissism and autism, it shows up a lot in cases like your father who went his entire life into his 60s going undiagnosed and not knowing what is wrong with him you know quote unquote wrong with him as in there's nothing wrong with him but the narcissism that's going to be developed from the trauma he endured early in childhood which is more than likely a result of the autism tendencies being squashed out of him so from probably his earliest memories his earliest point of existence he was probably told you know behave and don't act this way don't do that and constantly bombarded with everything that was wrong with him and so then we develop these protected protections and these defenses and it's like well if that's wrong then I have to be the complete opposite of what I was just doing and so then we get those narcissism tendencies because they get so good at reading other people and recognizing with this person I can behave this way with this person I can behave this way and they become these master maskers and almost chameleons of sort where they don't even know who they are themselves because they've never been themselves oh yes that is just some like brilliant golden nuggets that you just shared especially like like just wow spot on and exactly right like they can be these master chameleons like and they don't even know who they are and and you know a lot of my work has been healing this father wound and I've had big epiphanies this year around you know because obviously he he was very emotionally unavailable you know because of you know what's going on up here and so Mm -hmm. you know realizing oh like I realized as an adult he couldn't connect with me, not because I'm unlovable or there's something wrong with me. It's literally because he can't even connect to himself. If you can't connect to yourself, how can you expect to be emotionally available for a child or like connect with them? Like even just, I I was witnessing him having a conversation with like my grandfather and he, he fixates on, and someone, you know, maybe with autism, right, they fixate on, on people or trains or whatever that fixation is. And he's so fixated on people, like successful people. I think like that's where a little bit of the narcissism like ticks in. And mm-hmm. it's just real. it was just very eye-opening to watch this conversation and realize like he just literally doesn't know who he is at all. Like there, he has no sense of self. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's going to show up a lot too with pretty much anyone. I know myself, even when I can be having a conversation with a complete stranger and I can put money on it, my conversations are always going to end up trailing back to something along the lines of neurodivergency, talking about trauma, explaining things in the capacity that I understand them, everything. And that's kind of the coined term with my my friends and my family is stop therapizing me (laughs) because that's how they perceive it. And it's not, I'm that's literally who I am as a person is I'm just always analyzing and I'm always looking for patterns and trying to figure out those connections. And um, because of that, you know, that's, it shows up as a hyperfixation and circling. It's, it seems egocentric. It seems selfish because I'll circle conversations back around to it. And I don't even have the awareness in the present moment that I'm doing it but then you know reflectively looking back and then I can see like oh yeah I kind of hijacked that conversation and twisted it about something that was completely irrelevant but that's the thing is neurodivergent people they have these tunnel thoughts and once they start going down that tunnel we're just going to keep on going until we can't go anymore or somebody stops us 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I completely relate with what you said, with everything that you said. Um, cause yeah, I, I think also like psychology is very fascinating. Like my ADHD brain is super fixated on healing and, and trauma. And so like recently, like I've been putting myself out there on dates and people say like, I want someone who is passionate. And I'm like, I think you're thinking of something else. Like, yes, I understand. And that's beautiful that you want someone passionate, but also it's like, I can talk for four hours about trauma and anxiety if you let me. <laughs> and so it's just kind of like, yeah, I can always, and even like, I try my hardest not to, um, cause I, I look at everyone's doing the best that they can with their level of awareness, but I really can see people's patterns like so quickly. And also that's what makes me a great hypnotherapist, um, and, and coach, but it, it's, it's, it's very, um, once I get started, it's like, I'm there and I'm looking at your patterns and, 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 um, like people, like other, um, therapists that I used to work with, you know, as a case manager, they're like, yeah, once I'm off the clock, like I'm not analyzing you. And it, for me, it's more, it's like an unconscious thing. Like, it's just something that I do all day. It's hard to just turn off, and just like not do it. Um, and it's not like, oh, I'm looking for something is wrong with you. I'm just, it's also my day-to-day -day duties with clients. I just, do it very naturally. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's where spirituality comes into play a lot and where that lack is happening in the neurodivergent kind of healing realm is the spiritual component. We don't talk about it. And it, when we do, it's kind of like this woo woo, like, no, that's not okay. And then when you really start digging into it, looking into the research and the studies and the science behind all of it, it's all there. And it's not even the recent research and studies, this stuff has been around forever. And when you can get people kind of tapped in and channeled into that um, inner wisdom within them and connect them on that spiritual aspect and level, it really helps them understand, um, you know, if you take it a step further and we removed labels all together, what we would consider a lot of ADHD individuals are what is called a manifesting generators. So their way of existing in life is literally having an idea, realizing like, oh yeah, that makes sense. And then following th through with it and creating it. Like my, I'm a human design is manifesting generator and I have created so many businesses and it's almost like I get an idea in my head. I create this business. I build it up to success. Once it's successful, I don't want to keep doing it. I already did the work. I don't want to maintain it. Let's just throw it all away, start over again. I've done that four different times. You know, now I'm at the point where I actually, I, I really love my business. And so now I just keep growing the one that I have instead of starting from scratch. But that's um, a lot of it. And that's a component that's not addressed and it should be because it's very important and it further helps these people understand who they are and that there's nothing wrong with them. Mm. Yes, that is so fantastic. And yeah, I've dipped my toe into human design as well and connecting with like ADHD and like I am a projector in human design. And basically for those, like the biggest tech takeaway is like everything I've gone through is I can reflect that and, and see through people very easily and really analyze patterns even deeper. And ultimately like projectors, their energy like they have a lower capacity for doing many, many, you know, like we work best in a four to six hour window. And so for me, like, that's why I function best when I just run my business solely 
full time because um, I can do a few sessions and clients and maybe do some social media stuff and like be done for the day. Uh, and so like I function best that way. And so um, I think that's super beautiful of like adding in that spirituality component, because like for me, like a lot of my Instagram posts, if you guys follow me on Instagram, whoever is listening, like literally a lot of my like people like other friends of mine who are hypnotherapists or coaches, like they'll post and think about something for two hours and like, like perfectionist their way through posting it. That's not me. I'll just sit and meditate or think of an own lesson of my life and I'll transcribe it into content and people really resonate with it. And it's like going from that idea to almost like that physical manifestation of here is this post. Like I get these, you know, people call it downloads, like downloads very easily. And, you know, because I specialize in anxiety and mental health struggles and codependency and anxious attachment, it makes it much easier for these things to come through. And like, you know, for me, my business started with a thought of like, oh, I would love to do this. And then that's just like where it came from. Um, yeah, like for me, I, I don't my like my, you know, neurodivergent brain doesn't really show up as perfectionist. It's very like what you described as like, think a thought and then it's, it's there. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and a lot of that can be attributed to the personal trauma healing work that you've done. And that is something, a skill and a trait that is within all of us as human beings, neurotypical and neurodivergent. There's no separation. It is in every single one of us. We have that ability. And it's just a matter of number one, trusting ourselves enough to allow ourselves to go to those parts of ourselves that we don't like. Once you can go to that place and you can look at that part of yourself that you don't like, what is often called that shadow side and recognizing a lot of times our shadow is a huge asset to us when we stop resisting it. And that's something too, because in neurodivergency and with autistic children and ADHD children, that shadow side is very, very, very prevalent in their existence in their younger years and we're told telling them all of the time that's wrong you're bad put it away we don't show that and as a result then they're scared of their own shadow literally it it, it shows up in children all of the time you know it's being scared of the dark it's a physical manifestation of what we do to them as a result of not accepting them where they are and what they're experiencing we a lot of times forget that the first First time a child loses a toy that's the first time they've experienced loss in their life loss is loss is loss the way it shows up in the body the physical pain the emotional turmoil it is the same thing and so us as adults we look at it and it's like it's fine it's just a toy that's the first time they're grieving that's the first time they felt that pain and it's excruciating and we see that in hypnotherapy all the time when these people go back to these memories and their adult brains like well, that's not that big of a deal. And then all of a sudden they're crying and they're blubbering because they're allowing themselves to feel in the capacity that they needed to then and they weren't allowed to. So if we can meet our young neurodivergent children where they're at and experience the emotions with them, that healing is so beneficial. I myself have three neurodivergent children. It's the most triggering, hardest thing I've ever done in my life, but I'm doing it. And every time one of my children has that autistic meltdown, it's hard for me because it was very squashed out and I wasn't allowed to do that. Anger is a hard, hard emotion for me to grasp because I wasn't allowed to be angry because anger is loud and anger is explosive. And, you know, so when my kids get angry for me to have to tell myself, sit down on the floor and just be there. 
it's a, it's a mental process. And it's something that us adult neurodivergent people, especially if we're parents have to implement in our life. We didn't create these problems in ourselves, but it's our job to learn how to navigate through life with them and help prepare the next generations of living in this world, the pace we're on right now, which it is changing and trends are going a different trajectory, but it is necessary to really learn how to feel. We have to feel, and that's something that very few neurodivergent people allow themselves to do, even though they can feel so deeply. You got it. Everything you said just hits so deep for whoever is listening. I hope that this resonates as much as it does with me. Like everything you said, it's like feeling fear of meeting yourself where you're at, like feeling fear of feeling because also with parents, right? If they didn't give that attunement and able to sit with their child in this anger, in this upset feeling. And I I think for me, I'm not a parent yet. But like I, when I see children crying or when I babysat when I was younger, I felt the child's emotion very, very deeply. And like, for me, I always looked at it that way. It's like their toy getting lost. Like that's their biggest, that's so painful for them. It might not be painful for your 40 year old brain, but to this one year old, it's their whole world. And that's, devastating and so that could be your equivalent like they're feeling that could be your equivalent to your partner breaking up with you even though it might not look like that or it it doesn't look like that on the outside internally that's how it feels and so allowing yourself to attune to that help them process those emotions they don't they've never experienced these difficult sensations and emotions ever so that's why like when children also have a lot of behaviors, it's also, I like to look at, well, how are you, are you meeting them where they're at? Are you, are you sitting with them? Are you co-regulating with them? Meaning, are you sitting with them and saying, it's okay to feel this way? And that can be very difficult if you haven't done the work yourself. And so and doing that work of sitting with yourself, sitting with this shadow side and allowing, because if you allow your feelings to come up, you can allow your child's feelings to come up without shame and you could be there for them in a greater capacity. And I just think everything you said was fantastic. Well, thank you. Yeah. The other thing that's kind of important to include with that topic too, is for a lot of neurodivergent people, their mind is very loud. Even if they're not in a loud physical environment, they're sitting in a completely silent room the amount of thoughts that are going through, it's just, it's noise in their head. And for some, it may just be like that white noise, that fuzzy snow sound, but it's constantly buzzing in their head or whether it's their own thoughts or whatever's happening, but their mind is really noisy. And especially for neurodivergent parents, this is where a huge struggle comes in for that population is because then when you put children into the mix, chances are those children are neurodivergent as well. So they're going to have all of the stims. They're going to be doing all of the things, which is going to add more noise to those auditory processors or that struggle with auditory processing, because that's what I am. I can't, I have such difficulty honing in on a person's voice. If I can hear the microwave spinning and making noise. And if I can hear the dishwasher running and the laundry downstairs and the dog barking outside, I can't filter all that out. So when I am in those instances, you know, that's the biggest thing with neurodivergent parenting is number one, getting to know yourself at the core as quickly as you possibly can, 
because then you start implementing and teaching your children those things. In my instance, you know, my children, they know I struggle auditorily. All of us have had our hearing checked. Our hearing is fine. We can hear just fine. We just hear everything. So the techniques I use with my children is that, you know, if you need me, you literally have to come tap my shoulder, make sure I look at you so I am actually hearing what you're saying. Because if you're just talking in the background, especially if they're doing the mom, mom, mom thing, even though I can hear them saying mom, it doesn't register. It doesn't cross in my brain the way it's supposed to effectively. And so teaching your kids those things and how, how they can advocate for themselves. My three or four-year-old daughter, she needs physical movement. And so she is very good about advocating for herself. And she'll say, I need to dance, mom. You know, and we allow it. We do the twirls and, you know, she'll, if, it's nice out. She'll say, I just need to go swing. And she'll sit on the swing for two hours, just swinging and swinging and then swinging because she knows that regulates her and she can feel the difference. Right now we're working on implementing that stuff with my three-year-old son. You know, he's got more of the traditional level um, symptoms or signs that we would look for, but he's very physically aggressive because he needs deep pressure stimulation. So with him, you know, we teach him how to do push-ups on the wall. And, you know, you feel all that. All right. One, two, three, push really hard off the wall. And so he can feel that pressure internally and giving himself big hugs and big squeezes. That deep tissue really helps regulate him. And then my nine-year-old, she's like me with the auditory processing. So she needs a lot of silence. And so she will self-isolate. And, you know, the therapeutic world, a lot of people will say, well, that's not good for her. You know, she's getting depressed and that's not the case at all. She's regulating herself. She's recognizing I'm overstimulated. I'm going to start getting mad and screaming and yelling and fighting with my siblings if I don't go take a break. So if you identify as a parent, what triggers you have in the autistic stimming realm, recognizing what your children possess and then implementing what's necessary for everyone. That's one of the only ways I've found with myself and my clients of how to really live a functioning existence in a household like that. But it starts usually with those parents taking their blinders off and accepting themselves for who they are. Yes. Yes. And that's the hardest thing to do if you have trauma is accepting yourself for who you are and where you're at and like resisting where you're at. And I think everything you just said was so golden, like coming from the auditorial, like auditory perspective, and then like your son with the physical aggression and like, that's genius. Like I remember like, cause my, my brother, one of my brothers is autistic and he's older than me, but he, he's, um, more he's like they tested him and said like he was six and thinking level or whatever and like when I was young like he's always been way bigger than me like he always probably weighed 80 to 100 pounds bigger than me um he's just a bigger guy and he took medication and so that made him gain weight and so with that like up until puberty I don't know if there's like a study or something specific with that that like things clicked or maybe it was just a certain medication, but he was very physically aggressive. And even just like that skill of like pushing the wall and getting that energy out, needing that deep tissue touch, like that is so like, wow, like mind blowing because like he was very physically aggressive with me as a child. And I acquired a lot of trauma from that in and of itself. And so 
what my parents would do is just put him in timeout, which would make him more angry, more explosive. They don't know like how to regulate. Um, and he didn't like to be isolated. So like his was very different. So if he would have had that, that skill, wow, how different his life and my life and my other brother's life would have been. Um, so I find that super fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's too, that that's kind of how I went about finding and understanding this stuff myself was because I was dealing with all of these behavioral disturbances with all of my children. You know, they were triggering each other. My son would just walk up to his sisters, grab their hair and yank full force. He'd get a whole handful of their hair in his hand. And I'm just like, what is this? You know, because violence is a learned behavior. And I'm like, my children have never seen anything like this before. I don't know why they're acting this way, you know, and I went through a spiral cycle myself of like, what am I doing wrong? You know? So then that's when I invested a lot of time and a lot of money in taking these um, kind of CEU level courses and curriculum geared towards autism and neurodivergency, anywhere from nutritional courses linked to it, to pharmaceutical courses, to, you know, like occupational therapy and somatic stuff. You know, I did all of those. And those are the things that I really learned and recognized as my children or my son he's not aggressive he just has that built up in him and he can feel it and it makes him clench and it makes him frustrated so when I recognize that build up in him you know it's like you had said it's getting attuned to not only your own energy field but then recognizing the base level attunement of your children or you know your people that you're taking care of and then utilizing the skills that are necessary you know another thing for those really high aggressive um neurodivergent individuals is just sitting on a chair just the regular dining room chair and putting their hands underneath the seat and pulling up because that's going to it's like almost a reverse compression of their spine in the opposite direction so it's like giving you inversion and stretching but also compression and it really helps to feel all of the cells in their body that's why they like that deep pressure is because for a lot of them like their bones hurt their pain is very deep in their tissues in the way that they perceive it for some of them they can't feel pain hardly at all so then they're super sensitive and like if you like just graze on their skin they get really anxious and kind of jumpy because their ability of perceiving and feeling sensation physically is different that is fascinating wow this is just like genius like that's so wow that I'm so blown away that's just that makes so much sense and yeah even like my autistic brother he yeah very like physical and he I remember like one time he needed stitches I I don't know if it, maybe you could talk on this um I'm trying not to get too off topic but like he um he like like needed stitches on his knee and he was just saying like ow and he didn't present like he was in a lot of pain and just, he is a very, like, my mom and my dad would say, like, he's just a very high pain tolerance. And they would say, like, oh, he just can't communicate it. But it, is it more that he couldn't communicate it? Or is it more that he couldn't, um, like, he just couldn't feel it, like other neurotypicals might? Um, so there, it can be one of two ways. Number one is, like, for myself, the way I experience and feel pain is very, very, very deeply. So getting pinched or like getting a shot, even though it's very quick, 
I can still feel like that residual pain for a long time after. If I get blood drawn, I can literally feel the cells around that needle insertion site in my arm for an extended period of time. Like when I say extended, I mean like days. I can still feel where they put that needle in specifically. Um, for my son, and now I don't know this to be factual in the sense because I'm not in his body, but what I suspect with him is that he feels pain and he does he'll respond you know if he bumps his head he'll put his hand on it and he'll say ow but the residual effect wears off relatively quickly so he doesn't experience that long drawn out sensation of that pain it's almost like his mind feels it recognizes it okay it's gone whereas for me and both of my daughters who are hypersensitive to pain as well that will last a long time you know i could be standing there and both of my kids could fall down and scrape their knee I'm gonna spend at least an hour holding my four-year-old whereas my son I'm gonna give him a kiss on his knee and he's gonna run and play it's not that he doesn't feel the pain because he does and he recognizes it and he will display that like you had said with your brother he was saying ow it's just it's not long standing and it doesn't continue to um rise within their system if that makes sense yeah that makes sense that's really fascinating and could you explain from your knowledge, like what you, cause I know that this is like a very like nuanced answer, but I know that they can like coincide um, or like symptoms can overlap. Like, what do you see as the difference between, you know, having autistic tendencies or being on the spectrum compared to having ADHD? It's layered, very layered. Um, there's a lot of overlap and a lot of similarities. So I myself, um, I meet the diagnostic criteria for ADHD and for autism, um, but it depends on circumstances, situations and environments and what kind of presents with me more. If you see me out in public and I'm with at least you know one person that I feel very safe with, then you're gonna see me present more autistic in that I know I have a safe person, so I don't need to pretend to be someone I'm not because I have a safety net there. I have somebody that loves me and accepts me and that can recognize, hey, you're getting overstimulated. We should probably get out of here. Whereas if I go to Walmart myself, I'm going to look really ADHD and like I'm distracted because I'm constantly having to like look around and almost protect myself, even though I don't need to protect myself from anything. It's hardwired in me. Um, the nervous systems of neurodivergent people, for a neurotypical person to experience anxiety, that's what baseline living is for majority, if not all neurodivergent people. So then when they experience anxiety, it's extreme um, because their nervous system is regulated for constant hyper, uh, what's the word? Hypervigilance. There you go. Yep. So in, um, because they're kind of in that hyper aroused fight or flight state all of the time, prob most of them for their entire existence, they don't know how to regulate themselves at all because they've never been able to. They've never even known that that was a possible thing because this is how they've always felt. I know the first time I experienced um, kind of like a spiritual not really enlightenment, but a very spiritual moment after one of the first couple of hypnotherapy sessions that I had done is the following day, my mind was quiet. There 
there was no thoughts. There was no, you know, buzzing of the electricity. Like my brain was quiet. And that was the first time I was 27 years old that I had had a quiet brain. And I didn't know that wasn't a thing. I didn't know there was non-noise. And for a lot of neurodivergent people, they don't know that because they've never experienced anything else. You got it. I think that's like a fantastic explanation. And I think like that's what stops people from getting the deeper support that they need because they think this is, they also, a lot of people don't realize that it's not, um, yes, anxiety is common, but it shouldn't necessarily be your everyday state that you're living in. So it can be so damaging to live like that as myself, you know, I have ADHD and I had anxiety, like deep chronic anxiety, like definitely fit the criteria for generalized anxiety disorder. I believe personally, like after working with clients, like a lot of my clients, you know, have or had uh, complex post-traumatic stress disorder. I really think that I had that. Um, obviously, by the time I was working with clients, it I didn't fit that criteria anymore, or and I didn't fit really that criteria of generalized anxiety disorder. But after like trying hypnotherapy and some of the somatic tools that I were was using, I realized like whoa, like a lot of people are living in this chronic state of fight or flight, and they don't even realize that it's that you're not supposed to be living like that, and you shouldn't feel this miserable all the time. And this is why, like, I'm so passionate about my work and your work, because it's, you know, there are ways that you can work with your nervous system, work with releasing a lot of this anxiety. And a lot of the time people for, um, they go, they start with talk therapy first, which can be amazing, but it's not going to get to that root cause of that anxiety and that nervous system, like imbalance. Absolutely. Um, CPTSD is a very common diagnosis that's layered with this as well. Um, that's actually where it started for, well, not completely. My journey totality-wise started in about adolescent years, around puberty age. There is, for people, especially um, undiagnosed autistic individuals, puberty is a very hard time because things shift very rapidly. Social circles change. Dynamics between friends change. You know, girls can no longer be friends with boys. If you're friends with a boy, that means you have a crush on him. And, you know, the verbatim back and forth type of thing. So at that time in my life, I experienced a lot of difficulties. And they, you know, they started me on all these different medications. And I saw all these different therapists and counselors. And at that time, um, I was diagnosed with depression, anxiety, and borderline personality disorder, or on the cusp of that developing is basically how they had presented it to me. Um, and then trajectory down the years, then I got um, diagnoses of obsession, obsessive compulsive disorder, um, oppositional defiant disorder, you know, they just kept stacking them and stacking them and stacking them. And then like at the very beginning, when I talked about how I got started on this was that counselor that I worked with that recommended hypnotherapy. She was the one that pointed out like what PTSD is and then taught me what CPTSD is. And that was what really catapulted it was recognizing that diagnosis and identifying those things within myself. And then obviously the autistic tendencies coming out of me and going down rabbit hole research of really trying to understand what is this? Where did it come from? Why do I have it? How do I work through it? You know, and that's in 
the newfound research in terms of CPTSD healing is meditation, hypnotherapy, um, and there's a big insurgence of MDMA and um, psilocybin utilizing those components for helping to heal that PTSD and those wounds because that too it's it's quicker and it, it what it does is it moves that conscious analytical logical mind that that ego mind that questions everything and tries to make us think we're freaking crazy it, it hushes it just enough so that you can feel and experience fully and understand um, and as a result of all of that stuff, is how I really came to um, understand my neurodivergency. You know, I tell people all of the time, healing my CPTSD made me more autistic. That's the best way I can describe it because my CPSD, it made me, it gave me the ability to mask effectively and very well. So even though I had anxiety and depression and all of these horrific symptoms, the CPTSD made it possible for me to function as a neurotypical. Obviously it wasn't longstanding and it wasn't going to work, but part of CPTSD is protecting yourself, masking yourself up of all of the things that's wrong with you that is squashed out of you. So then as I started healing those things and recognizing my over jabbiness and my chattiness and talkativeness, that's just me vocal stimming. And maybe instead of talking so much, I should sing or hum. Well, I'm a terrible singer, so I don't do that often. But when I do, you know, that's something that it triggers other people because they're like, oh, my God, your singing is so terrible. And then I don't sing. And it's like, well, no, I just need to vocal stem. You know what I mean? So, yes, 100 percent. I think that's just fantastic. And, yeah, I really resonate with that because with what you said of like once you healed your CPTSD, you felt you um in your words, like became more autistic or your, your tendencies were, um, emphasized. They were, you weren't, because you weren't hiding them anymore, because once you are healing from CPTSD, you're really allowing your true essence, your authenticity to come through and feeling safe in that. And so with CPTSD, like for me, I feel like I resonate with that because all, and this is something that I've accepted with myself. I'm just silly. I'm goofy. I'm weird. Like anyone who knows me in my personal life would describe me as like being very weird. And like my friends, like all describe me as weird or crazy, not in a bad way, not in like a mean or putting down manipulative way, just like, and like I'm out there and not in a bad way. My friends love me for who I am and, and love that part of me because I'm so grateful that I have such great, like amazing supportive friends that support my authenticity. And, you know, but that's, that's really what comes out. And so that's also, once we get into healing like CPTSD and healing our anxiety, a lot of people have a lot of marital discord, marital dysfunction, um, their relationships start, start falling apart because they're trying to grow into this new person of who they truly are. And they are so used to hiding themselves and people pleasing and not showing, not saying their needs. And now that they are, a partner or friends. That's why a lot of the time people say like your healing journey can be lonely because it you're showing who you truly are and the people who you were masking to, maybe they don't like it. And that's why it's really painful also. And people don't want to, people don't necessarily talk about what that is on a healing journey as well. Absolutely. That, and that shows up a lot 
when you get into start kind of bypassing the physical healing and the mental emotional healing and entering into that spiritual healing when it in general and then when it overlaps with this neurodivergency healing because um I know in my personal instance and quite a few clients that I've worked with, part of their neurodivergency is their sexuality and recognizing I myself am a lesbian and I've been a lesbian my entire life, but because of the society I lived in, because of the upbringing, you know, the family that I was born into, it just wasn't acceptable. It wasn't a thing. And, you know, we have free will, we have choice. I didn't feel like I did. It wasn't an option for me to acknowledge my own existence. Like I masked my sexuality from myself. You know, I look back over my childhood, my adolescence and my teenage years. And it's like, how did you not realize, you know, not all women find other women attractive. And I'm just sitting there thinking like, well, yeah, all women recognize beauty in another woman. And it's like, it's different, you know? And that's, I, throughout my life, I, I mean, I, followed the path of what I perceived my life was supposed to look like based on Disney movies. I found myself a military man, Prince Charming, that wore a military suit and came in and saved the day. And, you know, he's a great, he's a great man. I love him and I respect him tremendously, but our marriage was shit and our marriage was bad because I wasn't being myself, you know, he wasn't fully being himself either. And we both recognize that. And we have so much more respect and admiration for each other now, allowing ourselves to be who we are apart. And, you know, we raise our children pretty seamlessly together. I have no qualms or issues at all, but that's part of a trend that's we're starting to see. And that's happening a lot in this neurodivergency healing is because people are recognizing like, oh, it is okay for me to feel attraction or love towards another human being, even if it's not in the traditional sense. And that, like I'd said, with as I continued to heal through all of the different wounds that I'd acquired throughout my life, I just really came to recognize the society that we live in just doesn't accept people for who they are unless we fit them into these boxes. And to me, I like to throw boxes off shelves and flip tables and create what others perceive as chaos. But I, I also know if I start creating this chaos, it's going to make people start thinking of like, does this resonate with you? If not, junk it, get it out of here. That's not who you are. That's who you've been told to be. Wow. I, I love that. And that's beautiful that like you recognize that like you're like you're in your healing your true sexuality and realizing that like hey like now me and my ex-husband or your ex-partner now like you guys can co-parent seamlessly and now have more respect and admiration for each other because you played a huge part in healing that part of yourself um and of like accepting yourself and that's the key and like even uh, I watched this one youtuber her name is um Colleen Ballinger and she's like formerly known as Miranda Sings but she's just really silly and funny and she was talking about her children she has three children and now like she was looking at these books that apparently are banned children's books and one of the books was talking about I am enough and it just talked about like all different and it's like banned in the United States and it's like people like it's just like society and and a lot of people don't want you to be your true self 
because it contradicts them. It shines a light on their own wounds and society is more um, seamlessly run when we're not when we're not hiding who we are. Because if we're hiding who we are, we can be in a corporate environment, work 80 hours a week, come home, you know, have the perfect American dream, but, and then be miserable inside. And this is like, a lot of people are like, I want to um, heal and, and know my true self that, and that's all, everything that Chelsea and I talked about is, can you accept your feelings? Can you accept your emotions? Can you accept who you truly are? Because that's when you will be able to acknowledge and see your true self and, and be able to connect with that higher self, as people call it, or that true self. And really connecting with that, that's when our world is going to change. And like, I love how you said, like, I see these boxes and I take them off the shelf. I'm very similar with my life. Like, I don't have a typical nine to five job. I like people just, they can't describe me necessarily in one word. I'm just a silly, weird, goofy girl with so many different sides of me. And so that can make dating, for example, very challenging because I'm, obviously very picky with who I choose to allow in my life, someone who's also doing the inner work and someone who also accepts themselves for who they are. Because if, if you can't accept yourself for who you are, that affect, that just affects everything. And so, yeah, I just loved everything that you said. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate it. And it's, it's just so cathartic almost in a sense to, really look over the course of my life, you know, and then hearing your experience and all of the clients I've worked with. And as I'm sure you see through yours, it's, it's almost like once you remove that blinder, how can you live in existence any other way? I, I just, I don't, I don't get it. It doesn't click in my mind because I am so free and there's nothing that ties me down. I mean, yeah, I have my responsibilities. I pay my bills. I do my things. But if I decide on a Wednesday, like after this client, I'm going to go take off for the week. I'm going to do it. There's nothing that's going to hold me back. I'm not going to have a person tell me like, oh, no, you need to be here to work. If I can make ends meet and live a functioning life. And there's a lot of people are recognizing that and that they're not. They're not a machine we're not robots. We're not made to be pumping out all that's coming out of us. You know, whose dream are we fulfilling when we're going to work in corporate America? That ain't my dream. I mean, maybe if I was at the top of the company, that'd be pretty cool. I mean, then I didn't do the work and I got all these people making money for me, but what about their dream? You know? And that's, that's where I, with a lot of my clients and I help them, my go-to question is, you know, if your back's against the wall, you have nowhere to go but forward you have all the money you have all the time there's nothing that can tell you no you can do anything that you want what do you want to do and when you put it in that level in that capacity because nobody dreams nobody thinks about what they want their life to look like it's always like I don't want this I don't want that and I don't want that and it's like well you're gonna keep getting it because that's all you're focusing on whereas if we can shift that to this is what I want my life to look like I know the first time I started working with a business coach that was oh four, three, four years ago, I think now, um, that was a question she had posed to me. And that was the first time I ever allowed myself to ponder that thought. And when I did that, when I look back at those papers and the stuff I filled out, the biggest thing was I'm going on two vacations a year, one for my family and one for, you know, just me and my partner. And since I did that, 
it's been a reality. Everything I have put into that answering that question, when I really sat down, every single thing has become a reality. And, and all it is, is a matter of recognizing our thoughts and really making the life that we want, because that's what we are. We are creators at our core. And that's what we're supposed to be doing is creating our own existence. It starts with understanding yourself as a person in whatever capacity is necessary. Ooh, fire, straight fire, what you just said. I, I agree a hundred percent. And that's beautiful. And and that, you know, and it's, it's, it's thinking like, what do I want? People are very quick in this society to say this is what I don't want but like in our hypnotherapy we have learned like okay our mind works on what we focus on expands and so let's focus on what do I want I want those two vacations a year I want this successful business what are the steps I can take to get there that feel good for me and so just that is so spot on and amazing and it's like we're here to catapult people into helping them achieve their dreams and when we're talking about our authentic self, our higher self, our true self, it's really about connecting with what do I want and aligning your actions and goals with that. And it also starts with believing that you are capable and that you can do it. And that's where like both of our work comes in is helping you believe that you are capable because trauma, especially if you're a neurodivergent um, individual or you have autism or autistic tendencies or you have ADHD, a lot of people will squash down what you truly want. Um, no, that's not possible. That's never going to happen. Uh, and just we internalize a lot of beliefs as a young child that we're not lovable. Something's wrong with us, etc. And so that's really where you and I come in to help these people who really are looking for that support and um yeah like how can people connect with you chelsea well um you can find me online at heartfelthealinghypnotherapy.com uh, you can also search heartfelt healing hypnotherapy llc on facebook or you can um, email heartfelt healing hypnotherapy at gmail.com or you could just call me directly at 605-933-9073. Um, and then after my divorce, the last name's Prussia now. So if there's any looking into things, some of the stuff says Smith, some of it still says Prussia, or some of it says Prussia. So either or, um, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast, Chelsea. And yeah, thank you so much. I hope you have such a great day. I do as well. Thank you. I appreciate it.